All right, welcome to Inductive Bible Study, class number one. Our subject today is observation, which asks the question, what does the text say? I'm going to read to you from Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, and then verses 5 through 8. Before I do that, though, really quickly, uh, let me just reiterate to everybody that if you know that you're going to be missing a class on Sunday afternoons, um, you can let me know in advance, and uh, I will make sure that I have that noted on my roll call list, and um, and then I'll make sure to get you a handout for the class that you're going to miss, and um, then you can listen to the class on our podcasts um, at, at our church webpage which is www.calvaryparis.com. Okay? Um, So Nehemiah chapter 8. And it says, All the people gathered as one man at the square, which was in front of the water gate. And they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. He read from it before the square, which was in front of the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of men and women, those who could understand. And all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And then I'm going to skip verse 4 and go down to verse 5. Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. Then they bowed low and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And verse 8 says, They read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. And basically, what I wanted us to see in this passage is that you have a basic um, understanding of what inductive Bible study is all about here in the book of Nehemiah. When the people gathered together to study the word of God in an attentive manner. And Ezra and the priests um, were reading from the book of the law of God. And, and that's the first part of inductive Bible study is reading and observing, you know, listening uh, you know, taking it in. That's the observation part of it. And then they were also translating to give the sense and, and giving the sense of what was being read to the people. And that's the interpretation part of inductive Bible study. And then there was also this, this idea here that they understood the reading. The priests and Ezra were making sure the people all understood it so that they could take it and apply it to their lives. And that is what inductive Bible study is all about. It's all about reading the Word of God, getting the understanding or getting the sense of what it is saying to us so that we can understand it and apply it in our lives. Um, there on your handouts, I've got that verse listed as well. Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, it says, Be diligent to present yourself, approved to God a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And I put that on there because we live in a time culturally 
where, you know, everybody, uh, there's a lot of culture wars going on and um, people want to be sensitive about what we say. But when it comes to the word of God and studying the word of God, we're not trying to be approved by the people or by the culture. We're called to be diligent to present ourselves approved unto God. And we want to be those workers for God who do not need to be ashamed because we're rightly dividing the word of truth. That word rightly divide is talking about giving, you know, getting a proper interpretation. Rightly dividing it means that you're, you're getting the correct meaning out of the text, out of the word of God. And that takes work. It takes diligence. And, um, but if you do the work, then, uh, you know, it, you, you're going to reap the benefits. Um, and that's really what this class is going to help us to do as well. We want to be those workers that are approved unto God, uh, that are not ashamed because we're rightly dividing the word of truth and we're standing on it and we're not ashamed of it. So, um, as I said before, observation asks the question, what does the text say? And our first point this morning is the different types of Bible study. So what are the different types of Bible study? Well, you've got three there on your handout. The first one is inductive. Inductive Bible study is simply the impartial extraction of the facts from the biblical passage and then reasoning to a conclusion. And and I like that. I like that the inductive Bible study is you're pulling out impartially. You're impartially just extracting those facts, kind of like a treasure hunter. You're just discovering them and then pulling them out, cleaning them up a bit. And then you're allowing them to lead you to a proper conclusion. And inductive Bible study is, is the safest kind of Bible study that there is because it's impartial. Uh, you're, you're looking at the text and you're coming at it in an impartial, objective way that is leading you to the conclusion that God has uh, for you in that. Uh, then the second type is deductive, B, deductive Bible study. And that starts off with a theme or a main idea and then looks for facts to support it. So, for example, if we were going to do a study on prayer, uh, prayer would be the main theme or idea. And then we would look for uh, scriptures to support uh, and to teach us what, what the Bible tells us prayer is. Deductive Bible study is, is very useful and there's a time and place for it and it can be very productive in the life of the believer. But it's not um, something that is, I would say, the, the best way to go about studying the Bible. A lot of times what can happen is people get off track because they do a study on prayer, but then when they finish that study, they don't really know what to go to next. And so they just kind of uh, end up, you know, meandering along through the Word of God and they don't have any purpose. The inductive Bible study method, you know, you can just do that wherever you're reading in the in the scriptures, uh, whether it's the one-year Bible plan or you have a chronological Bible plan, or maybe you're just reading through the New Testament and you can take portions of scripture and do inductive Bible study on those along the way. And then C, the third type is the trampoline Bible study. Uh, you start off in one scripture, um, but you end up anywhere at the whim of the speaker or the person who's studying uh, you know, it's really not very fruitful because there's no purpose to it. It just kind of is like 
somebody on a trampoline going up and down, up and down, and uh, not really getting anywhere. And so, um, you know, you've probably all heard a sermon like this, uh, kind of a trampoline type Bible study sermon where the speaker starts off, he opens his Bible and reads one verse and then closes the Bible and sets it down. And the next 30 minutes or 40 minutes, you're just all over the place. And you really finish that Bible study, you know, really only hearing probably about whatever that speaker had on his heart or mind in the first place to talk about. And it wasn't necessarily very scriptural. Um, um, you know, sometimes they are, but but sometimes they're not. So that's a trampoline study. And it's not definitely not the best way to study the Word of God. Okay, uh, next point, number two, convictions that lead to proper interpretation of the Bible. This is important. Uh, A there on your outline says the Bible is divine and human in its transmission. Okay, so divine and human. And that's something that we have to understand. We have to have that conviction. We have to realize, look, the Bible is both divine and human in its transmission. So meaning that its source is God, but God was breathing those scriptures into uh, the minds of human beings who were then writing them down um, for God. And under that heading, that point, uh, number one there, it says, it must be received as divinely inspired. It must be received as divinely inspired. And I've got a scripture there for you to look up. It's Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. And I'll read it to you. It says, All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So that scripture is telling us that all scripture, all the Bible, is inspired by God. And that word inspired is theonoustos in the Greek language. And it literally means God breathed. So when we say that the Bible is inspired, we mean that God breathed it out into the human authors who then wrote it down. And then secondly, it must be received as inerrant in its original autographs. It must be received as inerrant in its original autographs. And what I mean by that is, you know, we believe that the Bible is without contradictions and without errors in its original autographs. When God gave it to the men who wrote it down, it, it's, it was without error and, and uh, uh, without any contradiction. And it's still without contradiction. The Bibles that we have today, they don't contra- it doesn't contradict itself. It's one of the amazing testimonies that we have the Word of God in our hands. Uh, you know, you've got 66 different books, over 40 different authors living in different eras and different uh, backgrounds. And uh, they don't contradict each other. It, it, it all uh, has one message that is consistently pointing to salvation for all mankind through Jesus Christ. Um, you know, it's by grace, through faith in the Son of God. But let me read to you from the scripture that's on your outline. It's first or sorry, Second Peter chapter 1, verses 19 through 21. It says, So we have the prophetic word made more sure, 
to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. So that's uh, telling us that prophecy and, and, you know, scripture in general, it's not a matter of one's own interpretation. Uh, it, it was not an act of human will, but men who were moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And when they wrote it down, what God gave to them, it, it is inerrant or it was inerrant in its original autographs. And you've got to have that conviction. And why do I bring that up? Well, I bring that up because today in America and, and really all over the world, but especially in America where we live, Many of the seminaries today do not believe in the uh, divinely inspired and inerrant Word of God. Now, they might say that they believe that the Word of God is inspired, and they might even say that it's inerrant, but what they really mean, if you, if you look carefully and study carefully about what they believe, you'll see that they only believe that certain portions of it, which they judge to be um, accurate, are really inspired or inerrant. And so they've placed themselves as judges over God's word, which is a really dangerous thing to do um, because they're, they're, they're basically saying, no, we're the ones who are going to judge what God said to us. And so whatever we don't like or whatever makes us uncomfortable, we'll kind of write that off or, or that wasn't really God. And, and this is what it really meant to say. And that's really dangerous to do. So you have to have that conviction. If you're going to correctly and properly interpret the word of God, you need to realize it's divine and human as transmission. It's, and it must be received as divinely inspired. And it must be received as inerrant in its original autographs. And then thirdly, it must be studied within the principles of language, literature, and history. So those three blanks are language, literature, and history. That just means that the Bible, hey, it was written with he, the Hebrew language and the Greek language and the Aramaic language. And, and those languages have liter, literature, our, our, our literature uh, is written down as literature, meaning there's grammatical rules and, uh, you know, rules of interpretation that go along with it. And then it's also it has a context and that, that historical context is important to understand what life was like when these things were being written down. We come now to be that we're to interpret life experiences by the scriptures, not the other way around. Okay. Um, a lot of times Christians can struggle with this. <clears throat> you know, they're going through life and they have a crazy experience. And so they try to interpret um, scripture using their life experience instead of the other way around. So for example, a lot of times you'll have people that will have a dream about heaven or they'll have, you know, a dream about hell or something like that. And because they had the dream, they think that they know exactly what that's like. So because of their life experience, they'll read the Bible and they'll, they'll try to interpret the Bible using their dream or their life experience there. But that's not the way it should be. It really is supposed to be the opposite. The Bible tells us what reality is because it's God's word. And 
it's going to determine what our life experiences are. So we should take that dream, we should take that experience, um, you know, if it's an out-of-body experience or whatever it is, and you should uh, not make that the rule by which you interpret the Bible, but rather you allow the Bible to show you um, how to interpret your dream or your experience. C, don't be dogmatic where the scriptures are not. Don't be dogmatic where the scriptures are not. Okay, a great example of this, we just studied through 1 Corinthians um, here in our church. And in chapter um, 11, um, the Apostle Paul is, is talking about some problems in the church and in the worship service. And one of the problems there was that we don't know exactly what was happening because there's a lot of ambiguity. It's just not very clear. But something was happening where the gender distinctions between male and female were being blurred in the church. And Paul tells them that the women need to wear a covering over their head. But we're not even sure exactly what he's referring to because uh, in history, we're, we're, there's there's... You know, it could have been a prayer shawl that the, the the Jewish ladies wore, but 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 wait a second, this is a letter to a Gentile church, not a Jewish church. Um, it could have been the hem of the garment or a hood that they were pulling up that that ladies pulled up over their heads. Um, it, it it could he could have been talking about hair, you know, the length of their hair and 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 that sort of thing because he does talk about hair in that passage as well. But the the idea is is that there's some people that take that passage. And they, dog, they, they get dogmatic about it. And they say, look, see, right here, every woman has to wear a covering over her head. And so they're, they're, they're very dogmatic about that. But we realize, you really realize when you're studying that passage, that in the whole scheme of things, Paul's not really too concerned about that issue. He does give them some instructions about it. But he, the, the general sense there is that he's just wanting them to make sure that they maintain their gender distinctions in the worship service. And that they don't mix those, um, you know, they don't, they, there's no confusion over the, the gender distinctions in the worship service. And, and so, you know, that might come out in the way that they would dress, but uh, it's definitely not something that you get the sense that Paul was so strong on that he wanted to make another commandment for Christians, you know. So we don't need to be dogmatic where the scriptures are not. D. Moving on, don't try to rationalize scriptures to make them fit with contemporary theories like evolution or popular psychology. Um, you know, perhaps one of the, the, the greatest um, examples of this, or not greatest, one of the worst, is, you know, back in the year 2000 when Pope John Paul II kind of made a statement that, you know, evolution might be true and... Uh, the Big Bang Theory, uh, you know, it, it may, be, may be something that's true, but he said, but it was God that started the Big Bang. And, you know, I don't know if he intended this or not, but that really opened the door um, for people to start uh, believing in evolution because they thought, well, here's the Pope, uh, the head of the Catholic Church, and he's making this statement that, um, you know, the Big Bang Theory uh, was was real, and God was the one who started it, and he just got the process started. 
Um, now, I don't know if that was what he intended or not, but but it definitely opened the door. It was this kind of a rationalization of scripture to make it fit with, you know, the, the popular contemporary theory of evolution. So we don't want to do stuff like that. And then E, we don't spiritualize scriptures to make an application that the scripture itself does not make. We want to be really careful about doing that. You know, sometimes people will do that. They over-spiritualize a text or over-spiritualize the scripture just to try to make an application that they really want to make, but it it's not really in the text itself. And that's not always, uh, I'm not saying that that's not ever useful or that it's always wrong to do that. But when you're doing inductive Bible study, you want to stay away from that. Um, it's not profitable. It's, it doesn't help the process of being led to the facts are impartially extracting the facts and allowing them to lead you to the conclusion that the text is making. So we don't want to over-spiritualize things just to make an application that that particular passage is not making. And then F, do take the Bible in its literal, grammatical, and historical sense, unless you cannot. Um, And what do I mean by that? What's, What's an example? Well, for example, Jesus said, I am the door. Now, he didn't mean that he was like an actual wooden door with a doorknob that you had to come up to and, you know, knock on it. And like, Jesus, is okay if I knock on you? No, that's not, we know right there that, that that's, you know, not to be taken literally. That's a figure of speech that Jesus was using. And so we realize he meant, you know, he's the door. He's, he's the opening into eternal life. And it's through, you know, you, you pass through him by believing in him, by having faith in him, and that's how you get in uh, through the door um, that leads to eternal life. Uh, there's a saying out there. It says, if the literal sense makes the best sense, then seek no other sense lest you come up with nonsense. And that just means that, you know, if you're reading the Bible and it it makes sense literally and grammatically and there's a and historically, well, then don't try to change it. You don't need to seek any other sense. Just allow the impartial, extract the, the facts impartially and allow them to lead you to the proper conclusion. And you don't need to make anything up or try to fit it into uh, your own pre, pre, uh, uh, you know, preformed ideas. G, scripture has only one correct meaning and should be taken in context. It can have many applications, however. And an example of this there on your outline, it says, see 1 Corinthians chapter 9, if you want to turn there, um, and you can read through those verses on your own, but Paul is basically taking an Old Testament text from the book of Deuteronomy, and he is, um, you know, it it only has one interpretation there. Um, It's a text that talks about the ox, how the ox was not to be muzzled while he was treading out the grain that that ox was supposed to be given the opportunity to kind of to munch on some of the the grain stalks and the grain that was there um, and to get a meal basically while he was working and shredding out that grain. Now the principle, the principle there is that whoever's doing the work is worthy of their wages. And Paul takes that interpretation and he gives it a new application in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And he, he relates it to the work 
of a minister who is ministering for the Lord in the gospel. And he's sowing the seed of the gospel and he's harvesting souls. And Paul says that he has a right as a worker, as a Christian worker in God's service to make a living off of what he does. And so to, to, to be supported by the people that he's ministering to. And so that's a, uh, that scripture has only one correct meaning, um, but it does have uh, a different, ap- or Paul gives it a different application uh, there in 1 Corinthians 9. And then we come to H, where we see the purpose of Bible study is to know God and transform lives. To know God and transform lives. So listen, guys, that's the motive for doing inductive Bible study or any kind of Bible study. It should be that our, st- our purpose is to know God. We don't want to just fill ourselves with knowledge um, that is going to just cause us to become prideful and to think we know more than other people. And so, you know, we've got it together and they don't. And then we judge them and we become those arrogant, prideful Christians that you know, you you hear about uh, from people who have been turned away from the church, and that's not who we want to be. I put First Corinthians chapter eight verses one through three on the outline. It says now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. And I put those verses on there because it's just a reminder. Paul is reminding the Corinthians, those Corinthians, they had lots of problems, but uh, kind of like me. <laughs> but they they were getting puffed up in their knowledge. They thought, hey, we know all the stuff here. We don't need you, Paul, to kind of correct us or give us direction on this. We already know. Um, but Paul says, well, you think you know, but really you don't know anything like you should know it. And he says, but if anyone loves God, then this one is known by him. And, and he also says that love edifies there in those verses. And so the idea is, is that, look, you might have all the knowledge in the world, but if you're just using it to bludgeon people uh, and you're just going around in an arrogant way, just correcting everybody else and judging others, you're not doing what God wants. You are not, you know, you're, you're in, you, you obviously do not know God's heart and you have not been transformed. So Bible study is first for you. It's first for us personally, that we might know God and that our own personal lives might be transformed. So we shouldn't read and study the Bible in order to go out and change other people's lives. We need to read and study it for ourselves first. Three, um, misconceptions about studying the Bible. These are uh, common things that people, you know, have a a misconception about when it comes to this. And the first one is that effective Bible study doesn't take very much time or hard work. Um, That is just totally false, guys. Um, I I spoke about this uh, before, but, um, you know, if if you're going to, if you're really going to mine the nuggets and extract the truths from God's word, uh, it's going to take time. You're going to have to set aside time for it. It's going to have to be a priority for you. And and it is going to take some hard work. Uh, It doesn't just come to you. Now, there's times when, of course, you're reading the word and something just jumps right off the page at you. and The Holy Spirit is really speaking to you and convicting you. But other times, you know, if you really want to effectively extract the facts, you have to work at that. And so you have to set aside time for that. And be 
what seems to be tedious or boring, you could write tedious or boring there, is really not very important. Uh, and that's another false, uh, uh, that's a misconception about by studying the Bible. You know, this first thing that we're talking about, observation, it can be really difficult to do. Um, but it, it is something that is very necessary if we're going to understand the Word of God. So even though it might seem a little bit tedious, um, it's really important. And then see clarity of a passage is always easy to find. Uh, well, <laughs> we know that that's not uh, true. Sometimes the clarity of a passage, you really have to work through some things. You really have to understand the historical context, and you really have to study the grammar and understand the relationship between words and uh, the differences in between nouns and verbs and commands and uh, imperative, you know, commands and and uh, questions and all of those sorts of things. Is it is it a genuine question? Is it a rhetorical question? And so clarity sometimes can be difficult. Uh, and it takes, you know, it takes, takes some time, takes some digging. G. Campbell Morgan, the great Bible teacher, um, he, he gave, he's no longer alive, but he gave four principles for studying a book of the Bible. He tells us, first of all, you, you read and then you gain an impression. So it's through reading that you gain an impression of what the meaning is. But then secondly, you think and you gain an outline so as you think about what you read more, you begin to give it an outline, kind of like a skeleton that's going to support um, the flesh of the passage. And then thirdly, you meditate and you gain an analysis. So you go further than just thinking. You begin to meditate on it. You think about it over and over. You begin to flesh it out. You begin to hash it out in your mind. And you gain an analysis of the facts. You go, okay, so here's the facts. And this is kind of what they mean. But then number four, you sweat and you gain an understanding. Sweating and gaining an understanding shows you it's going to take some hard work. It doesn't just come. You've got to put some effort into it. And uh, the deeper you go, the more effort you put into it, the more of an understanding you're going to take away from that passage of Scripture. All right, number four, three steps in inductive Bible study. Um, the first step is observation. So write that there in the blank on A. The first step is observation. And observation simply asks the question, what does the text say? So in the very first step of inductive Bible study, you're basically reading through it several times. And you're asking that question, what is this saying to me? And, and there's some counsel here for you as you look at number two is to read the text prayerfully. Not just read it several times, but read it prayerfully. God, speak to me while I'm reading this. God, show me things. Uh, Lord, what do you want to speak to my heart? Or if you're preparing a Bible study, Lord, what is your message for the people that I'm going to be speaking to? And then three, read that text repeatedly. You know, use different translations. I get a question a lot as a pastor, you know, what's what's the best Bible translation out there? And I always tell folks, hey, it's whichever one makes most sense to you, whichever one that, that you feel the most comfortable reading that really is speaking to your heart. Because Bible translations... Um, you know, with the exception of, I think, the message, they, they employ scholars, biblical scholars that work together to give 
the the the, the best uh, translation of what was being said. And of course, there's uh, there's there's a whole spectrum of translations out there. There's word for word translations, and then there's thought for thought translations. And, you know, I think the, the one that's right in the middle is the new international version. It's kind of a balance between word for word and thought for thought. And then more on the word for word side of the spectrum, you've got things like the new King James version, the King James version. You've got the new American standard. In fact, the new American standard is actually the most word for word translation that's out there. But if you go to the other side of the spectrum, you know, you got the NIV right in the middle, but then you, you head out and you've got the, the uh, New English version. Then you've got the New Living Translation. And then kind of way out there would be something like the Message in, in the Amplified Bible and things like that. But the Message really, you know, is one that was just translated by Eugene Peterson. And, um, you know, I, I'd be careful about relying too much on that. You, you want to use something that's been, uh, you know, translated by, by many different scholars working together is usually more safe. But, um, but use all the translations to get a, a more complete sense of what the, the, the passage is trying to tell us. And then number four, read the text contextually. And I've got a verse there, Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20. And it's an often quoted passage there where uh, Christians will say, hey, where two or more are gathered, the Lord is in their midst. You've probably heard somebody say that. Well, that verse comes right out of Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20. But if you read those verses, it, it's not talking about, um, you know, believers meeting together and because they're there's two or more, the Lord has to be there with them. What those verses are talking about is church discipline. And when there's an issue in the church that needs to be addressed, and it's brought to the attention of the leadership of the church, where those leaders gather together with the witnesses and they're working things through, it's the Bible's, Jesus is promising that his presence is going to be there. And he's going to be helping them uh, in that situation of church discipline. He's going to be aiding them. That's what that's talking about. And then number five, read the text meditatively. You can look up Joshua 1.8, where it tells us we should really meditate on God's word. It should be part of our daily lives. And then six, read the text intermittently. Seven, read the text expectantly. And eight, read the text imaginatively. So we're to put ourselves into that text. We should really um, seek to insert ourselves into the story. You know, one of my favorite stories in the New Testament is when Jesus heals the blind man. And uh, I, I like to insert myself into that text as the blind man. You know, what if I was a blind man and I was there by the road and my life was really difficult because I couldn't see. And I heard that this rabbi was coming by who had the power to heal people. And he'd, he'd already healed on numerous occasions and lots of people had had demons cast out and the lame were healed and uh, people people were touched by him. And so, man, I would start yelling too, just like this guy, hey, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me, you know? And I, I begin to put myself into that story and it takes on so much more meaning and it becomes so much more special to me when I do that. So read the text imaginatively. And then A, ask inductive Bible study questions. And I'll let you read through those on your own. 
Um, but there, those are really good questions to just ask yourself uh, when you're reading through a passage and you're trying to get the facts, organ- uh, you know, extracting those facts and getting them organized. Well, guys, there you have it. That's um, the observation step of inductive Bible study. It's the first step. And a lot of people don't think it's a very important step, but it is an extremely important step. And I encourage you to take the time just to take these questions and to take this study and to apply it in your personal life, in your personal Bible study time, and to allow the Lord to just kind of speak to you uh, in, a, in a deeper way. You know, it's the great thing about the Word of God is it's living and it's active and it's sharper than a two-edged sword. And as we take the time to study it and observe it, man, it just starts to come even more alive. It just begins to speak to us on deeper levels in so many different ways. And I know you're going to be blessed as you go through this study. So um, if you need the handout for the class, uh, come and talk to me. I'd love to get it to you. And uh, you can fill in those blanks. But uh, hopefully we'll see you next Sunday afternoon for class two, where we're going to be getting into interpretation. God bless you guys.